0: Well, good morning. It's good to be here together with you. And it's been a busy morning already, but I want to make it a little bit busier. This Wednesday is what day? Veterans Day. If you are a veteran, if you have served our country and are a veteran, I'd like to have you stand. Would you do that so we may recognize you and give you the proper uh, thanks that you deserve. Any veterans in here today? Yep, there's one. There's another one, there's a few more. We're going to say thank you to you guys. We appreciate all that you have done. Uh, we're, we're blessed to have so many men and women uh, around the world. If you are related to a veteran who's not here, just lift up your hand. A veteran uh, that uh, has served in a world war somewhere or has served in uh, their country somewhere, yes. And so even more of those of us who have uh, those in our family. Anyway, we're grateful for you. We appreciate you. Uh, Liberty did a great job yesterday during halftime recognizing uh, the military. We really enjoyed that. And those of you at the football game. I enjoyed the end of the football game as well where Liberty came out with a win, but it was just a great halftime where they really recognized, did a good job, recognized our military. If you uh, would like to be participating in Children's Church, you can be dismissed at this time up through grade 4. Uh, you can follow your teachers out into the foyer and downstairs. There will be a graded uh, classes where they can attend that are uh, appropriate for them. For the rest of you, as I'm excited to get into Chapter 10, turn to Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, if you would. That is our stop today, 1 Corinthians Chapter 10. We have been working our way through a study through the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're just in 1st Corinthians now, chapter 10. In particular, freedom in Christ, uh, freedom's danger today and the next several weeks as we look at these passages. Uh, very beneficial time for us, very relevant passages for the church, and so I think it'll be a benefit and blessing to you as well turn in your Bibles. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. There are also notes on the back of your bulletin. If those are helpful for you, the the slideshow behind you will give you some underlines, so takeaways for you. Help you kind of fill in the blanks there and, and to have some thoughts to chew on throughout the week. Also, as I say from time to time, I hope this is not the first time you've been in the Word this week. The Lord has designed it to be read by you every day. We have some resources to help you do that, that you might know the mind of the Lord, set up the Holy Standard in front of yourself, that you might live that way you might know and understand how the Lord has worked in the past and how he works still. And so let me encourage you to be a part of a regular Bible reading. You can find in the back a trifold that will take you through the Bible in a year. Just as you get to the end of that time, just start again. And let that blessing of being in the word each year enrich you and help you to grow. We have made our way to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you are with us today and if you're new, uh, we have been talking about uh, freedom in Christ and this is the uh, this uh, section of 1st Corinthians is dealing with that uh, After beginning the letter by describing to the church in Corinth all the benefits they have by virtue of being redeemed Paul then uh, begins to address issues in the church that inhibit the health of the church Hence, the name God's plan for a healthy church From chapter 1 10 all the way to chapter 16 verse 9 Paul addresses a number of issues and some of them are really bad for example as we began our study Uh, from chapter 1 verse 10 all the way to chapter 4 verse 2, unity was his topic. And so he was dealing with errors in the church regarding division and regarding factions and backbiting and all of the kinds of things that go along with personality cults. And so he dealt with that. And then as he got to chapter 5 verse 1, to the end of that chapter, his topic was purity. So he had to deal with errors regarding immorality inside the membership and what's supposed to happen and occur during that time. From chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through chapter, uh, through verse 11, Paul wanted to deal with testimony. So he had to deal with errors regarding conflict resolution and taking other believers to court. And he gave the instructions there. And then from chapter 6, verse 12, all the way to the cha- end of chapter 7, we saw Paul deal with the body and with singleness and with marriage and errors in the church regarding immorality and marriage and divorce. And so Paul just kind of systematically goes through these issues to help the church see the health that God designs for it and then either deal with it uh, as a treatment or deal with it as a caution to not enter and go that direction. But beginning in chapter 8, all the way through chapter 10, verse 33, Paul deals with freedom in Christ and the errors that popped up regarding Christian liberty. Those are the, those are the gray areas, types of things that Christians in every era, in every time of the church have to deal with. Sometimes they are uh, universal types of gray area things, and decisions can be made that take you, take you on through. Sometimes there are decisions that need to be made uh, individually on a, on a case-by-case basis. Uh, but regardless of that, this is an area where Paul is dealing with freedom in Christ and errors that popped up regarding Christian liberty, and we're approaching really the end of that instruction. So if you're new, that's where we are. That's kind of caught you up in, in two minutes. Now in chapter 8, verse 4, I'd like you to look there, if you would. We get the introduction to Paul's instructions here. And what we see is, as Paul begins to talk, we begin to get an understanding of the specific issue that was involved with the church. And then we begin to make an application, a much broader application to the church. Now look at verse 4, if you would, of 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. So the main thing, what? Eating things sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, we have some common knowledge here. What is it? There's no other God except the God, okay? So we know there's no such thing as an idol in the world. There is no God but one. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet, verse 6, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So there is, in a nutshell, the issue Paul's going to deal with in the church is going to make a very broad application then for us as we work our way through. The topic is freedom in Christ, gray areas, types of things. The particular situation is, uh, is that some in Corinth are eating meat that's being offered or has been dedicated to an idol or are going to feast times as we talked about at length last a number of months ago going to feast times where whatever the feast was whatever the social holiday was it was dedicated to a god so everything that was going on was dedicated to some false god paul says there are no other gods except the god so it's not a big deal there's nobody there in the temple nobody at home there in this false worship but the the issue is people are eating meat that's been offered to ded- and dedicated to idols and the prevailing attitude which went along with it which made it wrong which made paul have to address it is this that some have this attitude, I have the freedom to do it, so I'm going to do it, I have the right, and there's really no other consideration besides my freedom in Christ to do what I know I'm allowed to do. And so what Paul did was, he made it clear to them that, you know, you do have freedom to do many things, but the overarching consideration when addressing a freedom decision is how your decision is going to affect, affect other people in the church. And so Paul been, begins to correct this kind of self-absorbed, self Uh, you know, kind of uh, eccentric type of attitude that it just matters what I think and it just matters what I do and I can do what I want. I'm free in Christ. And if you're not uh, of that understanding, that's too bad for you. Grow up. And Paul says that's not the way you do ministry in the church. And then in chapter 9, Paul gives them two examples from his own life on what it looks like to limit your freedom for the sake of others. And we won't go through all of this, but I want to read it and just give you kind of that overview. Chapter 9, 1 through 18, Uh, Paul points out that he voluntarily limited his right to be supported by the church. This may have been or may not have been something the church was even familiar with, what Paul was doing, but the fact of the matter is he did that. uh, He limited his own freedom to be supported by the church and to to be taken care of in his ministry with the church. And so he did that so that those who were critical of him wouldn't have cause to stumble over what he was requiring and had the right to do, which was be supported by the church. And then the second example was from chapter 9, verses 19 through 27 where Paul points to this overall pattern of his life, where he has limited his freedom in order to be an effective witness to whomever it is that he's witnessing to, Jew, Gentile, weak, uh, under the law, without the law, all of that, he says, listen, I've made a decision in my life, and it really becomes a, a universal principle for believers, that as a believer in Christ, you have then come to the conclusion that you don't have rights, freedoms, if it relates to the unredeemed, because you set those aside so the unredeemed can come to faith. And so now on the heels of those two examples, particularly Paul's closing comments, uh, look at 1 Corinthians 9.22, if you would. This is very important because it really takes us into the next section we're going to look at. Paul says this, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. That's it. That's Paul's. That's Paul's attitude. That becomes the attitude of the believer, those who follow, you know, things that you've heard and seen and know to be in me, Paul says, these things do and the God of peace will be with you. So as Paul uses himself as an example, it becomes then the example and the model for believers to follow. Paul says, I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Verse 23, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So in other words, there's no freedom in my life, Paul says. Uh, more important to me than the freedom to limit my freedom for the sake of the gospel that's the most important freedom I have the freedom to reign my own life in in such a way and do what it takes to reach those who are unredeemed and then he gives the key because as he alluded to earlier uh, there are some qualifications to his connection with the unredeemed world in other words he doesn't just throw everything out the window and just do whatever the unredeemed world does and we went through a lot of that stuff and we won't go back through it again you can catch up with that online But because in order to do this correctly, in order to be able to make this happen, you can kind of see some questions coming in from Corinth to Paul. How in the world can you become all things to all men so that you may win some? How is it possible that you can do this? And as we said before, you can't just pull it out of your hat. It's not going to be something you can just generate on your own. It's going to have to be a commitment, a discipline, if you will, a self-control that's going to make that happen. So Paul says in verse 24, this is how I accomplish this. Look at 924, if you would, in your open Bible. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Paul says, this is my attitude, and you understand this. This is common knowledge among you. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and imperishable. So what's the connection? There's gonna be some self-control involved. Fruit of the Spirit has to be play in play here if you're gonna be able to become all things to all people that by all means you may win some. Verse 26, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. In other words, I'm not just going through, I'm, I'm not running track and then figuring out my own path. I'm not going cross country and then getting off the course. There's a way it has to be done, Paul says. You know this from life experience. It's gonna be the way it's gonna work for believers as well. I box in such a way so as not beating the air, verse 27, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So, around Paul and around the Corinthians, as we talked about last time right at the end, are temples of immorality. Self-indulgence is the name of the game. Uh, Paul is free in Christ. His sins are forgiven. But... Uh, just like uh, and the fruit of the Spirit has to come in control here, you, an athlete has to say no to some things. That's Paul's example. So the believer, he says, has to say no to some things. Uh, you, and limiting your freedom for the sake of the church and limiting your freedom for the sake of the unredeemed uh, is combined with Paul's new focus of limiting your, his freedom for the sake of spiritual health. That's the way I have to do it, Paul says. This is how I have to, re- I have to rein my body in. Self-control is key for Paul in order not to be made Ineffective to be set aside as disqualified. That's Paul's point. That's the what he wants to make sure they understand. His overall motivating factor is: I don't want to come to the end of this and then out there a little ways find that I've been disqualified. I'm not effective as a witness that the Lord had intended for me to be. Why? Because I've misused my freedom and done some things that have brought me under bondage and set me aside. Okay. Now that's the issue, and and you know the heart of the matter really. And Paul talks about this in other places, but Galatians 5:13 I think describes it as clearly as possible. Paul says this, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't give an opportunity for your flesh to begin to uh, excel. It's self-control is is important. You are free in Christ, but the things you involve yourself in may give your your flesh an opportunity. He says, but through love serve one another. And as we will see, this is really the transition Paul is making between the end of chapter 9 and some illustrations about his own personal reigning in his freedom, and the beginning of chapter 10 peter says in first peter 2 16 act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of god in other words you have freedom act that way you certainly are under the law of christ which is freedom in the gospel but use your freedom to become a bond slave of, of christ and that really is paul's i think as we get up to this point in first corinthians 9 that is paul's emphasis as a bond slave so paul's going to make One more illustration then on freedom as we move into chapter 10. And here he's going to use the Israelites to illustrate what it looks like to use your freedom as a covering for evil. That's exactly where he's going to go. He just got through saying, don't do that. He said it in Galatians. Peter said it. He he said, listen, I rein my body in. I bring in, self-control has to be in play. I don't want to find myself disqualified. And that's exactly the illustration he's he's going to point to now as he moves into these early verses of chapter 10. And back around June now, and you probably remember this, we, were, we began to look at this topic in chapter 6. Uh, there Paul began to address the body and he began to address, address immorality. And this really takes us into our passage today. And in the context of chapter 6, Paul says this, and you may remember this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Okay, what law are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. All things are lawful. Underneath the gospel, where you're forgiven for everything, all things are forgivable. So in other words, uh, Paul is just reiterating that inside the law of Christ, and we, looked, we looked at this at length when we went through it, so I won't go through it again, but just inside the law of Christ, you walk in the grace of the gospel. So in light of that, Paul says, all things are forgivable. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You understand that, beloved, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You, all things are forgivable. There's nothing you can do to take you out of grace. Okay? So Paul says all things are forgivable, but Paul says some sins really cheat you. In other words, God will forgive, but the price is high. Immorality is one of those things we saw back there in chapter 6 that God forgives. God has forgiven totally and completely by the blood of Jesus Christ in his grace. He's forgiven every single sin you've ever committed if you've come to faith in him and every one you'll ever commit. But the principle there is very important, and here it is. With the misuse of freedom there's a very high price that may be exacted because there's a loss built into that sin your body is robbed by sexual sin and that was the principle we looked at and that helps us understand where Paul's going to go here. The last part of verse 12 Paul said this All things are lawful again the law that's the spirit of law in Christ uh, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus all things are lawful for me but I'll not be mastered by anything all things are forgivable reiterating that all things be forgiven. All those things have been covered in the blood of Christ, but some things trap you. In other words, God will forgive, but you could be captured. Now, I don't think you'll talk to anyone who's been captured in sin as a believer and have disqualified themselves and set themselves aside who would have said at the beginning of their life and their walk in Christ, in my freedom in Christ, I'm going to indulge in stuff that's going to capture me and set me aside and ruin my life. No one's going to stand up and say that any more than someone who tries their first drink is going to say, in 35 years I'm going to be an alcoholic, I will have lost my family and my life and I'll end my job and I'll be on the street. No one says that, okay, but it is a possibility and Paul says, listen, all things are lawful for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. And that mastered word is very important, okay, Ectusiadzo, future passive indicative. What's that mean? Just exercising authority over and it. here it's used in the body, and it be, can be used to mean enslaved. And there's no more enslaving thing than sexual sin. Now, here's the Corinthian believers in the name of liberty, misusing their freedom. And in the future, that's that future passive indicative. In the future, this is going to be true. Being brought up under a slave relationship to their misused freedom. That's what Paul says. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered in the future, brought up under a slave relationship where the misuse of my own freedom and find myself then captured, dominated by my own desire. Paul says, you're forgiven, but these things can happen. It can rob you, and a high price can be paid, or you can be dominated by your own desires. Okay, Paul says that in Galatians. Uh, Peter says it, he warns us about it, and then in chapter 10, Paul's going to get into this very example, and he's going to use the Israelites as the illustration of what that looks like. So that's where he's headed. He's told them his own prescription for faithfulness. He has... and why he reigns in his freedom to avoid being set aside and he's going to use some very unsettling actions by some of his ancestors and what they participated in in the past and where those actions took them as the illustration of why it's important then for this freedom to be reigned in and in self-control say no to some things. If you're an athlete, you say no to some things. If you're a believer, you're going to have to say no because there are these possibilities of being set aside. So he's going to return to that same type of warning then about the misuse of freedom as we look at 1 Corinthians 10.23. Here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. There's the difference there. Not all things uh, build you up. And so then he will wrap up this instruction to them on the freedom of Christ and the gray area things after he makes this illustration. And then he's going to move into chapter 11 and deal with the Lord's table. Okay, so that's, that's where our future is. That's where we're looking, okay, as he finishes chapter 10 and this last very important illustration, and as he gets to the end of chapter 10, he just wraps all the arguments up and gives it to us in a package. So that's where Paul's headed. That's where we're headed. Now, let's read our passage today. Look at, uh, if you would, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. We'll read all 33 verses as we want to get, allow the Holy Spirit to begin working in our life through his word. He desires for us to proclaim his word Uh, publicly in the church. Jim does that partway through the morning worship time. We're going to do it now. So look there if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, if you would. And we're going to read all the way through verse 33 as the Lord give us understanding. Here's what he says. Verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the, and in the sea, verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food, verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness, verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved, verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 15, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break sharing in the body of Christ? Verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Verse 18, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Verse 19, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Verse Verse 20, no. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? Verse 23, all things are lawful, But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Verse 25, eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. Verse 28, but if anyone says to you, This meat is sacrificed to idols. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Verse 29, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Verse 32, give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. Let's stop right there. It was the end of the school year. Kindergarten teacher was receiving gifts from her students. She'd been a teacher for many years, very sure of herself as she looked at the gifts, what they would be. She received the first gift from the son of a florist. She shook it, she held it overhead and said, I bet I know what it is, it's flowers. Little kindergartner said, that's right, how did you know? She said, well, just a wild guess, and she chuckled to herself. Next student was the daughter of a candy store owner in the mall. Teacher held her gift overhead, shook it and said, I guess, I can guess what it is, it's a box of candy. That's right, how did you know, asked the girl. Oh, just a wild guess, said the teacher. Next gift was from the son of a liquor store owner. Teacher held the package overhead, It was leaking. She touched a drop of the leakage with her finger, put it in her tongue and said, is it wine? No, he said with a big smile, it's not wine. Teacher repeated the process, tasting a larger drop of the leakage. Is it champagne, she asked. No, the boy replied with a lot more excitement. Teacher took one more big taste before declaring, I give up, what is it? With great excitement, the boy replied, it's a puppy. (laughs) Golf legend, Arnold Palmer, recalls a lesson about being too sure of himself as well, it was a final hole in 1961 Masters Tournament. He had a one stroke lead, he just hit a very satisfying tee shot, he says, I felt I was in pretty good shape as I approached my ball. I saw an old friend standing next to the edge of of the gallery. He motioned me over, stuck out his hand and said, congratulations. I shook his hand and as soon as I did, I knew I'd lost my focus. And the next two shots, he said, I hit the ball into a sand trap, then put it over the edge of the green. I missed a putt, a putt and lost the Masters. He says, quote, you don't forget a mistake like that. You just learn from it and become determined that you will never do that again. And I haven't done it, he says, in 30 years. He went on, of course, to win the Masters in 1962 and 1964 and the PGA Championship in 64, 68, and 70. Uh, He won the PGA Tour 63 times, that's fifth overall, so he obviously learned at least part of the lesson of being too sure of himself on that day. And when you get to verse 11, which uh, here in chapter 10, following up on a number of mistakes made by the Israelites in the wilderness, Paul says this. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And we could say, along with the Corinthian believers, what are we supposed to learn, Paul? What is it that's the thing we're supposed to get from what happened in the wilderness? And it's the same lesson that the kindergarten teacher and Arnold Palmer had to learn, and they had far less at stake. Paul says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed uh, that he does not fall. And as we get to the passage, we're going to see that this is the principle Paul wants believers to understand. And here it is. Being too sure of yourself, being too confident in your freedom can have some drastic results. Paul leads into that in chapter 9, verse 27 by saying, I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself might not be cast away or or disqualified. Then he goes in and he shows a whole bunch of self-assured Israelites who had their knowledge of all that they had, and then come around to being disqualified themselves. And so I think that's the point. And I'm, I'm foreshadowing a little bit because it is our introduction to this, this uh, chapter, but I want you to see that it has to do with self-assurance, it has to do with an attitude perhaps that we shouldn't have, which is, uh, I'm going to be fine, I know what my freedoms are, and I can do what I want, and just kind of a a laissez-faire approach to all of that uh, can be very dangerous. So as Paul comes off his statement in, in verse 27, chapter 9, he says, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified. The danger of adokimos, the Greek adjective, disqualification, or or uh, unapproved status. So Paul says, that's what I don't want. I don't want that date in my future where I have abused my freedom to the point where I am no longer useful as a witness for the Lord. And that adokimos uh, adjective is very important. It's a currency word. It has to do with Uh, The many different coins that were used in the first century, there were laws on the books to help merchants and consumers not get ripped off. Some 80 plus laws in antiquity just dealing with what the coin has to look like and how much it has to weigh. And some merchants who cast coins for currency, because there were many, many different kinds of coins used, uh, they became known as dokimos, or approved men, because they only put genuine full-weighted money into circulation. And the ad, then, at the beginning is a negative particle. It just gives the word, the negative, unapproved. What Paul doesn't want is to become someone shown to be unapproved by what he may be free under the law of Christ to do. Get that? And so this is his focus. And he reminds the Corinthians that they have freedom to give up their freedom to bridge the gap to the unredeemed. But there's always a danger of misusing that freedom. And really, Paul uses the Hebrew children to demonstrate what it looks like to make decisions based on self-confidence because they're so sure of their knowledge, like the Corinthians were in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Remember when Paul says this? He says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. And that's a prideful problem with the Corinthians. They know what they know. They're pretty concerned about what they think they know. Prideful self-assurance is a reoccurring theme in the church. And then he says this in verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. And Paul is implying there that some things they don't, there are some things they don't know yet about their freedom. And so Paul will go on in chapter 10 and reveal some of the, new, of the dangers of what they're allowing in their life right now and they, uh, as they use their newfound freedom. That's where Paul's going, okay? I think you get that. Now let's, see how, let's look at the verse, first four verses and see how far we get. Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ. Now Paul has a method here of why he's saying all this stuff. Let's look at it. Paul's addressing the church and he wants to make sure that everyone in the fellowship knows a few things. Now the Jews in the fellowship would know these things in general. Gentiles may not know anything about them. And so this is new information for some, but it's a continuing topic, really springing off Paul's caution about being careful about the freedom that he has. So verse 1 he says, For I do not want you to be unaware. Paul says, I don't want anyone to continue in ignorance about some of the things I'm about to say. And this is an example of what I'm talking about. Paul says that our fathers, so, not all the Not all in Corinth were Jewish. So what kind of father is he referring to? He's talking to Gentile believers. So what's he say? He says, for I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers, what kind of father is that, beloved? Go ahead and say it if you know it. It's a spiritual father. That's right. Father in the faith. Our fathers in the faith. So he's making sure that the Jews would know this. Gentiles may not know this. Father in the faith. It's a spiritual father. Romans 4.10, Paul tells the church. That Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe. All who believe with the same kind of faith as Abraham. Paul makes that very clear in Romans, and we looked at that at length. It is, as we pointed out over and over, it is people who live by faith in God no matter what age it may be. God's people who trust him to save them by faith. Those are God's people, and Abraham is the father of all of those people. Okay, It has to do with being God's people. So he says this, if I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Let's stop right there. And these experiences are not just examples, uh, let's say this again, these experiences are just examples of the salvation of God delivering his people from the land of Egypt, okay? Paul just, he's starting to build a case here, he wants to make a connection, because you can just see this right now in the Corinthians' uh, mind, so why are we talking about the Israelites? Here we are in the church age, and maybe we have the same idea in our own mind, You know, how does that connect with us? Uh, Something that happened 4,000 years ago, is that important? 3,500 years ago, why is that important? Maybe as you read through the Old Testament, you're thinking, why do I have to read this? I mean, this this doesn't seem to connect with us at all. How does an ancient civilization connect with us? And Paul's going to make this case, and that's what he's trying to do here. So he says, for I don't want you to be unaware, don't continue in ignorance. Our fathers, that's our spiritual fathers, all of us, he says, Gentile Jew, are, if you're redeemed, spiritual father, we're all under the cloud and all passed through the seas. So these experiences are just examples of the salvation of God delivering his people from the land of Egypt. Every one of our ancestors had this same experience. They all experienced the power of God. That's Paul's point. Now the cloud would have been God's Shekinah glory, okay? And the sea would have been the Red Sea. So don't you know read anything into it if you're a covenant person, they didn't walk under the cloud and get rained on, and that's how they were baptized or anything. And, and when they went through the sea, remember it was open, okay? They weren't actually in the water, they were walking on dry land. It's an illustration of what it looks like to be saved by God. And it's a connection to the modern church. Okay, there it is. So, everyone who came out of Egypt was saved by God from Pharaoh and from bondage. Here's the thing, but not everyone who came out of Egypt trusted God to save them from sin. Okay? Now look at verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the illustration simply helps us to understand this. Where I was supposed to be, sorry. So the illustration helps us understand the experience of Israel and her exodus from Egypt foreshadowed the experience of believers in Christ. That's all Paul's saying. There is this picture of being saved from slavery, being saved from the domination of Pharaoh, uh, being brought out and towards the promised land. And Paul's just making a c- connection. He wants the people in the modern church to see why they're connected and why it's important that he's going to bring up the Israelites now. They were all identified, if you will, in the same way. Nations who watched this happen all identified Israel as a whole as God's people. And just as a footnote, there's no interruption between the stream of faithful people of the Old Testament and believers of the New Testament. Paul tells the mostly Gentile church of Corinth that those who came out of Egypt were our fathers. Paul says they are our spiritual ancestors, that we belong with those who believe. And as the one true family of God separated, only then by thousands of years. Still the true family of God for all who believe. Okay? This remains true to this day for those of us who are Gentile Christians. At the Paul, Paul's point appears to be that the people of God did not begin with the disciples of Jesus, but they began with Abraham. Okay? Now he's not talking about universal salvation, that everybody who came out of Egypt was redeemed from their sin and trusted God to deliver them. He's not saying any of that, Paul's not going that far. And baptism, of course, isn't salvation, it's, it's simply being joined together with the deliverer, identified with him, and so we know that how salvation occurs, always by grace through faith, and there is certainly a spiritual component of baptism at salvation, according to Romans six, and we looked at that, where spiritually we die and we rise in Christ and picture by the water, but that's not where Paul's going with this. He's just making a connection from the modern church to the Israelites in the past. Paul's just showing that elements of of a former dispensation foreshadow the dispensation that would follow. Redemption from slavery in Egypt and the giving of the law and the journey towards the promised land in the Old Covenant all foreshadow deliverance from Satan, slavery to sin and death, and the journey towards the true promised land, which is the eternal kingdom. Moses is a type of Christ. Egypt is a type of bondage to sin, the exodus is a type of salvation, uh, and the promised land is a type of our eternal home. And I know you get all that, I'm just kind of making the connection and and connecting all the dots here, okay? So let's move on. Look, Look at verse three. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So, Paul just continues to make the case here of how connected these believers in this first century church are to what went on in the past. And he's got a method here because once they're connected, then he's going to show the mistakes that they made in the past and why that's important to watch out for the mistakes you could make today. Okay, and we'll make that connection here in just a minute. So, all ate the same spiritual food, verse three, all drank the same spiritual drink. Israelites ate manna, drank water from the rock. Believers ate of the bread, eat of the bread and the cup. And when Paul says spiritual food and drink, we understand that manna and water from the rock identified God's people with his provision. He gave them water. He gave the manna, it identified those people being provided for by the Lord. Just like eating the bread, drinking the cup of communion identifies believers today with the salvation of Christ and his provision of salvation. Now let's look at the rest of verse 4. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Paul makes it absolutely clear. This is not some disconnected group of people who are doing some different thing than what you're doing. The parallel can't be any more clear when Paul ends with that statement. And here's how Paul explains it. He wants to connect the Corinthian church and the New Testament church to what went on in the wilderness. So he makes something very clear. Here it is. The Israelites who fled from Pharaoh and who were led by God towards the promised land, here it is, listen, beloved, we're enjoying fellowship with Christ ahead of time. Now it's gonna connect now this New Testament church to Israel. As they ate manna and drank water from the rock, That rock, Paul says, was Christ. Uh, John 6, 31, great illustration here. Illustrates very wonderfully for us. Jesus speaking to the people. They're making a connection, a perfect transition for Jesus. Verse 31, Jesus is talking. People are asking questions. The people say this. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, they're saying, hey. Give us a sign that you are who you say you are. Moses gave us manna so we would believe him. What are you going to do? And here Jesus makes the connection for them. Okay, so it's not just Paul making this connection. Here he says, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So there's a foreshadowing, a a type, if you will, of manna, but it looked forward to whom? To Christ. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, I satisfied you in the wilderness temporarily, but I myself am the true bread from heaven. And I myself am the true water, and if you take of me, speaking of salvation, believing who he is, and he is who he says he is, and he's done what he said he did, he's going to come and do what he said he came to do, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst again. So it's connected intimately with what goes on now with Jesus. So Paul connects the church to the past, says that the rock that followed them provided water, was Christ. As we see over and over again, Jesus existed prior to the incarnation. This is not new for you, we talk about this and make this connection every time we can. He was active in creation. He was active in the Hebrews' deliverance from from Egypt because he followed right along that rock that provided water was Christ, Paul said. He was active in providing for their needs, just like he's active today. So in their baptism and in the manna and in the water, he connects them to the present-day church, and he connects the present-day church to them through all of that dialogue. Okay. Now, once again, we're not talking about universal salvation for the Jew in 1500 B.C., any more than there's universal salvation for the church in Christ, or in Corinth, or in the New Testament church, or any other place. That isn't Paul's emphasis. And no doubt there were redeemed Jews who trusted God for salvation and followed the activity of the faithful in observance of the law that was handed down just as as an expression of inward faith, and we've talked about that. The sacrificial system, those who went through the motions, weren't connected to the salvation of God, just doing the things to do them. But those who Uh, expressed that sacrificial uh, uh, law and did that because it was an expression of their heart. That's really how they felt. They understood God's deliverance. They understood the picture of the sacrifice. Those were truly redeemed, just like today where we have people come and enjoy communion. If you enjoy communion as a believer, it's the activity of the faithful. It doesn't save you any more than getting in the water saves you. It just shows you are saved by being obedient and desiring to do those things that are the activity of the faithful. But There could be many who go through those same processes just on the outside, and they're not redeemed. So, Paul wants to show that the Jews had the whole thing, okay? That's the important thing. It's, they're connected to you. They had all that they needed to have. They understood. They knew who God was, what he could do. They experienced his power. They experienced his provision. They experienced his care. And what did most of them do? And we're skipping forward a little bit because we're almost out of time. What did most of them do? What did they do with all that they had, beloved? Everything that they understood from God. All that they'd been exposed to. They abused it. They complained. They fell into false worship. They imposed on God's patience. And eventually, they were set aside. That's the thing. So all Paul wants to do is to connect the groups to show a common heritage and then warn of the pitfalls that can beset those who are God's people. That's what Paul wants to do. So he goes through these first four verses, and he makes that connection to them very clearly. He already said back in chapter 9, verse 27, that it was possible to get out there a little ways in your walk with the Lord and find yourself disqualified. In other words, Paul, the believer, disqualified for service, unable to do the witness that he wants to do, unable to be the connection to the unredeemed that he wants to do because in his freedom, in the abuse of his freedom, he has disqualified himself as a testimony, that's exactly what happened with some of the Jews. So Paul begins to make his point in verse 5. Look there if you were with me, and here's where we'll begin to wrap up. Okay, First thing Paul says in verse 5, what is it? What's the very first word in your copy? Nevertheless. Nevertheless what? Nevertheless, in spite of all the benefits that they had. Nevertheless, in spite of seeing God at work. Nevertheless, in spite of coming through the sea, nevertheless, in in spite of following the cloud of fire by night and the the cloud during the day, nevertheless, in spite of all God's care and provision and manna and water, nevertheless, in spite of being identified as God's people by everyone who watched, delivered from Egypt with mighty miracles, nevertheless, in spite of all of that, in spite of being known by who they were, by what went on, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, Paul says, for they were laid low in the wilderness." So you can see Paul's connection then between the children of Israel and a freedom-loving church in Corinth, who's very sure of themselves and they can do what they want and they're not constrained by anything else and I'm free to do this and I can participate in whatever I want and I can go eat uh, meat sacrificed to idols and I can sit in a temple and I can go and, and celebrate a, a, a holy day, if you will, to the false gods and, and, and celebrate a wedding that's dedicated to some god. I can do all that. See, because they say, "I, I I have knowledge. I'm very self-assured in this. I know exactly what I can do and what I can't do. And so the point Paul's making is, listen, the Hebrew children had a lot of benefits, didn't they? And they saw God's power, they were known as God's people, and they came through the water, and they were led by the cloud, and, and Christ followed them along as the rock in the wilderness and provided water for them. They were known, they were provided for. They had all this benefit. They had the whole thing. And they were eventually set aside, many of them. That's what Paul says. Nevertheless, with both of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. So what he doesn't want is he doesn't want the church at Corinth to think, here it is, that the benefits of salvation will deliver them if they misuse their freedom. That all that they know that Christ accomplished and all the the confident freedom that they have in what God has done through salvation, he wants them to understand, many of the original group of Israelites who saw all that God did didn't make it to the promised land. And no doubt there were many who were truly redeemed in that group. They were saved. They trusted God for salvation. And yet, in the liberality and in the confidence and the overconfidence and the misuse of God's grace and the misuse of God's provision and all the things that happened in the wilderness, they fell into sin and they were trapped. And they were disqualified for God's purposes for them. That's the point Paul wants to make. And the principle that we learn here and that we learned at the end of chapter 9 is all the more clear. God's moral character does not change. If we misuse our freedom, our overconfidence, and in, in our arrogance the way the Israelites did, we can find ourselves trapped and unfit for the witness God has prepared for us. That could happen just as easily with, brand, with believers in Christ in the, in the New Testament dispensation as it could happen and did happen with Israel. And he's going to move on and make some great examples of what that misuse of freedom looked like. In God's grace, in his care, that he watched over the Israelites and brought them out of Egypt, they misused that and grumbled against the Lord and did what they wanted. See? And, beloved, in case you think that that's just not in the New Testament, let me remind you, the experience of Israel is not unlike the current experience of the church today. 1 John 5.16 is a passage that you hardly ever hear preached on. I've had it asked in q a before numerous times first john 5 16 and 17 here's what it says really speaks to that along with another number of other places we'll just have time for one more first john 5 16 here's what it says if anyone sees his brother so what's the audience Are these believers okay if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask and god will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death in other words you're, you're watching someone that you know in the faith who is doing something that's obviously sinful in their life. And that sin is going to corrupt them, is going to set them aside, it's going to cause some problems for them. And you can pray for them. God says, pray for them. That's one of the ways you can respond to sin in somebody else's life, is to pray for them. Okay? And then he says this. John says, There is a sin leading to death, and I don't say that he should make requests for this. Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. So, in other words, there are sins believers can get into, and they won't lead to their immediate death, the Lord disciplining them and taking them home. They may lead to other problems in their life, and you can pray for them. And but Paul says, listen, if there's a sin someone's doing, it may be a sin that's going to lead to the Lord disciplining them and taking them from the earth. And as a believer in Christ, you live under the law of liberty. And we say this over and over again. What's the law of liberty? That's the gospel at work in your life. All sins are forgiven. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So whatever it is that you do is all forgiven, isn't it? It is. That's where you are. Understand that, beloved. That's what grace is. That's what the gospel is. We couldn't keep the law, so Christ came and fulfilled the law and gave us forgiveness if we believe in him. Okay? Confess him as Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved for the judgment of the law. Saved for being under the law. And the penalty of the law is all gone. Laid on Christ. So you live inside the law of liberty. You're free from the condemnation of sin. All things are forgiven, both now and forever. And yet, it's possible, according to John, that you can misuse your freedom to the point, in other words, you're doing things that you're forgiven of and not under condemnation for, but you can misuse your freedom to the point where God will bring you home rather than allow you to continue your life here. We could say it this way, if we just want to say it like Paul said it about Israel. But with some of the church, God was not well pleased, and some have committed abuses of freedom unto death. You see? That's not a new idea. Now, it isn't a verse that gets talked about very much because it's uncomfortable, as you probably are uncomfortable right now. To read it and to think about it john says pray for those who have misused their freedom and fallen into sin but for those that god has determined to discipline by death prayer won't do any good god's already determined they're not going to be the witness for me that i want them to be and i'm going to go ahead and bring them right on home with me they've gone farther than i'm willing to allow them to go and i'm not well pleased with their actions so now they're going to come home and no amount of prayer by other believers is going to stop that from happening okay That's that's John's point. And that's pretty sobering, isn't it? The passage we read when we take communion, 1 Corinthians 11, remember that? We read it every single time we take take, uh, uh, communion. And this is is the same type of passage. And I, I say this to you every time we come to take the table because I think it's my responsibility to do that and your responsibility to take to heart what it says. And we'll just look at this and that'll be it, okay? We've read this very often, so it's not new to you. We had this parallel made by Paul, 1 Corinthians 10.5, we see it in a very much clearer light here, okay, when Paul says, God was not well pleased with them and many fell in the wilderness. Here's the parallel in 1 Corinthians 11.27, Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And we explain the unworthy manner as coming to the Lord with unconfessed sin, coming to the Lord with a nonchalant attitude, making unholy what's holy, just coming with a freedom to do some things that you shouldn't be doing and an abuse of freedom, which brings you to the point where God is not pleased with how you're coming to the table. So it's not just a, hey, free for all, come up and have the cup and have the, have the bread and don't worry about what's going on in your life. Not that at all. And I think we make that pretty clear every time we take communion. And so I don't want to continue to beat on it here. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So you come in here, misusing your freedom in Christ, and you're in sin. You're, you're in sin, although you're, you're free from condemnation of that sin, but you're just willingly, by your own freedom, just doing some things that aren't pleasing to the Lord, are, are hindering your witness, and hindering what you're supposed to be doing, and bringing, bringing disrepute on what Christ has done for you. Paul just says this, you know, if you come in and you don't judge the body rightly, for this reason many among you are weak, many among you are sick, and a number of you sleep, and that's death. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now. We could say it this way if we want to say it like Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 10.5. But with some of the Corinthians, God was not well pleased. And so some were made weak and some sick and some he took home. So it's connected, isn't it? It's not like something that happened back there 1,500 years before uh, Christ was born. And that's, like, that's not connected to our world at all. And what are we worried about? No. Paul wants to make a clear case. There's no interruption between those who are of faith in the Old Testament and those who are of faith in the New Testament. And There's no interruption between the misuse of freedom under God's grace back then and the misuse of freedom now. You don't rein your life in. You don't take a good look at what you're doing, Paul says. Listen. With some of the Corinthians, God was not well pleased and some were made weak and sick and some sleep. With some of the church, John says, God was not pleased and some have committed abuses of their freedom unto their own death. And no amount of prayer from other believers is going to deliver them from that. I'm taking them home. So they're using their freedom. They're taking communion here in 1 Corinthians 11:27. 27. In an unworthy manner, in their freedom, they weren't examining themselves. In their freedom, they, weren't taking some, they were taking something holy and making it common. In their freedom, they weren't judging the body and what they were doing correctly. And in their freedom, they were too sure of themselves and too confident that everything was okay. See? And Paul is determined not to be disqualified and so submits to a rigorous self-examination and self-discipline and reigns himself in and he tells the church that's how it's got to look. When you have freedom in Christ, you better be careful to take a look at what you're doing. Because in verse 32 here, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Even in God's disqualification, and even in his discipline, and even in his bringing some home, he shows that they're his. You see, So it's not in unkindness, or vindictiveness, or capriciousness that God's doing any of that. It's just simply, listen, these, you're my people, and you have freedom. And don't use your freedom for a cloak of of vice. And don't use your freedom to give the flesh an opportunity. It's an engagement. Don't fight like you're beating the air. Don't run like there's no track. Okay, this is ministry, and this is life, and it looks like something. And it has a line laid out, and there's where you run. And in that freedom, you are free to lay aside all your rights and minister the gospel to people. And be that bridge. That's where your freedom is, see. Not in overconfidence, and I am who I am, and if you don't like that, it's too bad, I'm doing what I want to do, and wearing your freedom like a chip on your shoulder waiting for somebody to knock it off, okay? It's not that. So even in God's disqualification, his discipline, he shows that they're his here in 1 Corinthians. And beloved, I I think that's a good word for the church today, I'll be honest, and we're out of time, so we're gonna stop right there. But I think that's a good way, that's something that we need to ponder in the me generation, Right? It's all about me and what I want to do. It doesn't matter what other people think. And I'm just going to serve myself and consumer church and all of that. Listen, in the me generation, this is super important. Paul says, there's a track laid out. It's not your own personal marathon track that you can run apart from everybody else's. One gospel laid down, one time for everyone. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to run. This is what you're free to do. Okay. And yes, you're under no condemnation. But does that mean that God's just like, whatever. Not at all. Let's bow and be dismissed. We're out of time. I don't want to keep you too long. Next time we're going to get into some of Paul's examples. But now that you know how it's laid out, you see why he brings them up. Once again, misuse of freedom and what was the result of all of that. Again, it hit very close to home for the Corinthians. Very relevant passage for the church today as well. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for just this wonderful opportunity to be together. We thank you for um, your word. We say that a lot, but we are so grateful for it. It is so Uh, encouraging to us it's enlightening to us opens our understanding of who you are and what you expect thank you for the connection today to those who've come before our spiritual fathers uh, who uh, with some God was not well pleased you were not well pleased it says in the word and uh, because of the misuse of freedom uh, because of the misuse of grace uh, the misuse of your provision help us never to be caught up in that type of attitude father and perhaps if we've never thought through these passages again, the one out, of first John, or one out of John 5, Lord, I pray today you'll help that ring in our own hearts, resonate, help us to ponder and meditate on what that means. That in your grace, uh, you will discipline us and sometimes take us home, but not because you don't love us, because you want to show that you really, we really are yours. Show, who? show the world, show other believers, that you're active in the church, just like you were active with those from Israel many ages ago so father make us that kind of church help us individually to know what your word says and to do what it says understand what it means and what it means by what it says and put it into place in our own life uh, uproot some camouflage sins in our own life and camouflage misuses of freedom that we're doing help everything as paul says as we evaluate our whole life to be brought up under subjection that we can give up our freedom for the and become bond slaves to the unredeemed so we're concerned about what the world thinks about what we do and what we allow and what we say, what we participate in. We're concerned about how that affects other believers and may uh, cause them to stumble and have a difficult time and perhaps lay up a roadblock for the gospel. So, Lord, we have responsibility. We have freedom to be a bondslave of your son. I pray that is exactly how we use our freedom. And, Lord, you make application as you see fit by your Holy Spirit. And we together say, Lord, make application in our own heart. Evaluate us ourselves as david said see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the everlasting way lord Let that be our prayer tonight, and we pray this in the name of your son, jesus. We love you We love your son. We look forward to him coming. We want to be found uh, As those servants who were doing what the master said to do when he shows up Help us to be those kinds of people Give us fruit for our witness this week father help us to perhaps bridge the gap for the first time with the unredeemed that We know that you put in our circle And, Lord, I pray that there will be fruit from that gospel as you plant it and and as it gets watered and as the, the, uh, the light of understanding shines on it, help it to grow and perhaps give us some harvest, too, this week. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.